Biggest Bad Boys Podcast presents Matt Michaels People I Don't Hate Hey everybody, it's Matt Michaels here on the Biggest Bad Boys of Podcasting and today I am joined by someone that I have become a very quick fan of after uh, seeing some of his work and he's an actor who is uh, currently going to be uh, having a short film that's kind of making some waves and it's going to be out uh, very soon. It's called The Ice Cream Stop and it's uh, Mr. Dustin Harnish. Dustin, how you doing, brother? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm doing a lot better now that um, I have the movie out of my head because um, <laughs> holy shit, dude. <laughs> um let's let's we'll kind of get into the the premise of it which is that um a uh a husband comes home from work he's he's in the medical field his wife is pregnant she has a craving at 3 a.m for some ice cream he goes to get it he happens to be an african-american man who gets pulled over by a real couple of dick cops and um man did you play that dick cop role amazingly uh, <laughs> before we get into the process of the character let me ask you what was it in terms of the process of, of the film um how close were you in you know the development of it um and how did it come about so a friend of mine who i started way back when in film school um, I wasn't in the film school. He was in the film school. I couldn't afford the film school. So uh, I was going around all the uh, film schools auditioning for all their parts to play in their, their student films. And um, a buddy of mine named Raul uh, and another buddy of mine named Charles Van Laux, they selected me to play um, the Joker. Uh, they were doing an, an adaption uh, based on a young you know, character about the Joker and how he becomes the Joker sort of guy. Nothing like what the newest movie is with Joaquin Phoenix, the great Joaquin Phoenix and what he's done with it. This was way before, this was back in 2010. Um, I'd only been acting for about four or five years at that time. And I was very much trying to, you know, get my chops together and take classes and work with all the student films because that was the way to sort of, uh, get yourself involved and keep the yeah. wheels greased up. And so in that process, I met my friend Raul Perez, who is our director in the ice cream stop. Um, and also a future project that's coming out called the four points. But um, that was a really interesting process working with him. And then uh, so him contacting me several years later, we, you know, we loosely stayed in contact. We've always been friends in terms of the film business um, he, we loosely stayed in contact and he reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to do a couple of projects and one had happened to fall over the pandemic. In fact, we had shot two things over the pandemic, one, which was sort of, I would guess probably kind of like our warm up um, to get acclimated to each other and come back into sort of like an artistic sort of, uh, you know, um, reintroduction, if you will. Sure. And, um, he showed me this script and says, dude, I've got this part for you. And you'd be playing this, basically this wicked guy 
Um, and it sort of centers around all of the stuff going on right now with police brutality and social injustice. And I looked at it and I went, well, that scares the shit out of me. Right. Because, um, I have cops in my family. Um, I, I still not only retired, but still acting cops. And, um, it's something I've always wanted to do. I didn't, I never thought the part would come along in this format. You know, I've always, every, every kid and boy wants to play a good cop, you know, or, you know, like the hero detective or, you know, a dirty cop, you know, and I never thought I'd be playing, you know, like the shitty white guy that's, you know, going to kill the black dude and then be ridiculed for all of those things and have to be that guy. And so, um, sat down with our executive producer who ended up being our, our lead actor, um, the writer, Marcel Baber. Um, by the way, the lead actor is Ty Edwards. He's phenomenal. The guy's winning every, every, all, we're so just to go back for one second, we're still in very much in the film festival circuit and we still have about another year to go close to because of all the things we missed in 2020. And then right. because of 2020, we had to miss a couple of deadlines in 21 because of that whole, you know, nuanced dilemma that, that the whole world was in. Right. Um, but so because Ty did such a great job in that and because of who he is in that and what he delivered in that um, every, almost every, I would say more than half of the film festivals we've been in, he's been nominated at least for best actor and won. I want to say 11 or 12 now best actor yeah. awards. Um, so having that said, to go back to the present part of the conversation, which was uh, him and I sat down and he basically validated me, him and the writer who's also an African-American man who's never written a movie in his life, Marcel Baber and said he had a dream one night, woke up and wrote this film. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, black men that share a very similar experience when it comes to the police, I believe. And at least from a lot of them that I've heard and from what we've all seen, and it'd be kind of difficult to deny that, you know, cause we don't live that same experience. So, um, they sat down with me and explained to me what this guy was and who he was. And I read the script and right away I go, well, knowing cops as well as I do, you know, I mean, I don't know everybody, but, um, the ones that I do know, and I've lived in Los Angeles for a long time. I'm from the Bay Area in California. So, I, I mean, they handle themselves a little different, but they're all kind of principally the same, and at least in modern times. Um, the language here and how you have me speaking and all of that, we, we had to chop that up and we had to go over and analyze that. And I had to go through this whole thing with them and, and go, well, I love this part and I, I, I love more what it could be. Right. Um, and this was the very beginning stages, right? This was months and months before we shot the thing. And I decided to commit to it, not only as an actor, but as a co-producer, because I'm thinking to myself, well, I have things that we can also add into this. You know, I can bring some friends in to do this and, um, we can rearrange, you know, some of the, the creativity of the script in this part, if that would be allowed for me. And it, it was, these guys were more than happy to take my input and take my um, invitation to explore the creativity. So for me, that's kind of like a win-win world as an artist, because sure. now you're allowed 
to sit down and explore the reality of what these things actually could be not rather than the fictitious element of it. Right. Right. We all have the ability, you know, in this, in this entertainment world to create, and that's what, why we're here. I feel as an artist, there's a lot of these types of parts that you have to get right. You can't just scoot over some of these things or portray them as you think they might be. You need to actually research them. You need to actually dissect these kinds of people to play them. And if I'm going to play this guy, who's going to be totally hated. I said, I have no problem with that, but I want to make sure that I do my job. So I want to make sure that he walks and he talks the part. And that's a difficult thing to come to because now you're accepting a person that is totally a 360 degree opposite from yourself. Let's say so let's, let's 180 degrees. And let's, yeah. let's talk about that. Cause that's one of the things I, I want it to kind of get your process of how you dealt with, um, taking a character and inside of yourself having to go to a very dark place to make the character um, a believable person as compared to um, some actors will, especially some young actors, they'll glaze over the process and they'll play what they think a bad cop is. And I think what you managed to do is you managed to pull something out of yourself that wasn't a very common place that you go to in your life. Um, How hard was it for you to kind of reach those depths, especially when the camera stops rolling and now you have to go home and be a husband and and a father, you know? It's, it could be very difficult to let some of that stuff go, especially in this case. I don't want to give away a lot of stuff, but especially in this case, there's a particular guilt that, damn, I don't know how long it takes to get rid of that feeling or what kind of triggers are still there to you know bring about that process again in your mind um, in your everyday life. Yeah, it's a great um, analysis there uh, and also a great observation because that's exactly what I thought when I was looking at this part. And then on the day when we filmed it, it was very scary to be that person. It was terrifying. And my buddy Ty literally and the writer Marty walked up to me and they said, Dustin, if you don't fucking do this thing, and if you don't say the things that you need to do, and if you don't act this guy the way he needs to be, it's not going to sell. You're not going to, you won't be able to sell this. You have to go there. And I was like, you're right. And they said this to me from moment one, even before we were on the set. Um, and that sunk really deep with me because they, they basically gave me the reins to do and be this guy that is totally unacceptable. And, and look, we see characters in movies all the time that are totally unacceptable, that are totally, you know, shameful and we hate them and all that. But the point of that was, is that, Dustin, we believe in you as an actor to sell this 
this character and be this guy. And so this is the place we would like for you to go. And I felt like that if I didn't even take that a step further, then I wasn't doing my job. And yeah. I had to dig deep down into the deepest pits of my soul to sort of allow myself to connect to this evil guy. And I won't, I don't even want to go out on a limb as bad as he is and say necessarily that he's evil. I want to say it more realistically that he was troubled. I want to say that the man was lost. I want to say that the man had, had his, his, his whole priority and value system completely misconstrued Yeah, because if you see the end of it without giving too much away, you understand that he realizes something, right? Right. And I think the only way you grab that is to be human. Right. You know, I mean, even the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst, unless you're a complete psychopath, I, I right. think that you're, you're able to recognize that you've done something horrible and that you've been doing something horrible and it might take one moment in your life to just snap you awake. And what's really, what's really interesting about that as an analysis, especially because of what you said um, in, in the realization moment, I think what's interesting as performers is Finding that reasoning um, in the character's life in which the situation that they're in is now taking over, um, just kind of uh, superseding the actual lifestyle or uh upbringing or um you know the the things that make up the person it has to be that all of a sudden that human aspect comes through you have to get past the surface shit to make it a real moment and that's what i was most impressed with is that it went from you being um, a very recognizable um, fear. You know, your your character is recognizable fear, and then it flips to a different side of that that's inside of you as a person. And I think that was just such a, a wonderfully, um, you know, created moment, a, a real moment um, that could have easily, your revelation in your head could have easily played um, very cheesy. Because yeah, it, and and I think they were right in telling you, hey, really, it's going to be your performance that hinges this getting sold. Um, because if Ty didn't have you to play off of, then his performance would not have hit the level that it did. And I think that that it was just so very evident that 
what you guys were doing, <laughs> we were playing such a beautiful game of tennis, man. It, it, it was just, it was just volley, serve, backhand, boom, boom. Uh, you know, um, to the point where, I mean, I'm watching this going, oh man, okay. <laughs> you know, you just, you, you so invest in Ty and then all of a sudden, you know what's going to happen in your in your psyche. You already know what's about to happen. And then you never see what's coming past that. And it it just worked, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate that very much. Um, to add to what you said there, uh, the fear. You nailed a, a, a point there. I think the way some of these people act the way they do is because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. I think especially cops, they go out, they got a target on their back. A lot of the times, you know, and, and you're talking any race of cop, you know, Caucasian, black, Asian, Hispanic, they all exist. Okay. Um, But the story we were telling was the story we told. And it's a very relevant one because of the way the system is built. And I mean, you know, it makes me think about moments where I, I don't even think my dad as a cop through the eighties and nineties could, he's a really big guy, you know, like I'm sure he had moments where he was afraid of something or like had a real nervous inclination, but you know, that was something he told me, which validated a part of my performance at least was my dad telling me that you played that, like you didn't back down from him, even though he could, squash you he's such a big guy and and that's the reality though you know i mean this is what's going through a cop's head when they go through and i'm not a cop but i know a lot of cops right um and i've i had to talk with a lot of cops to do this and this is one of their things you know um a lot of times they walk up to a car and that's the moment that they die actually uh it's statistically cops get killed pulling people over more than in any other situation of being a cop, but that's neither here nor there more of the situation of man versus man. You have the ability to take away their rights. You have the ability to take away their freedoms and you over accentuate and take advantage of those powers because you're afraid. And I think that's where cops like this guy that I played get off. And I think yeah. that's why we're in the situation that we're in right now with that. Yeah. And so I think that's why this story had such a powerful impact because it's actually shedding light on that. And I'll be honest when I tell you that that ending moment, it actually wasn't written. Um, they let me sort of free flow and, 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 and go in the moment with Ty and because the characters were written so well, the story was written so well that the director Raul captured us in a moment where it could have just been, like you said, a cheesy moment or my character could have come off cheesy and just like licked it away and walked away (laughs) kind of guy. But I I felt like the redeeming qualities of anybody, even, even a, a murderer, you know, we're watching this on film and we want to try to see why somebody went to the place that they went. That's why we watch it. We, we watch it because we sort of fantasize these moments, whether we relate to it or not. 
and we want to see what's going to happen next. And I felt like it would have totally done the film in a, a disjustice, you know, an injustice to play him that way. And I mean, he wasn't even written in, in a corny way. So I was like, you know, he needs to have an endearing, at least redeemable quality as a man, as a person, whether there's a badge there or not to realize that he's made a mistake and he's been making these mistakes. And finally he made one that hit him right in the heart and it, right. and it made him see almost his life before his eyes, even though it took him taking another life to see that. Um, and so I feel like that's one of the, it's one of the most rewarding projects I've ever done as an actor and as a producer, but mostly as an actor because of the fact that, um, I was allowed to have the freedom to play this guy that has all of these different arcs in such a short period of time. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, I mean, hey, if we could all pick and choose the way this all happened, I mean, it would be great if this was a huge feature film. And But the fact was, I got that opportunity on a short film for very little money that we shot this thing for. Um I mean, we shot it during a pandemic lockdown, nonetheless. And while I was shooting this thing, I don't know if you want to call this retribution or karma or for whatever I did, but I had an accident the day after we shot this, that scene. In fact, um, I had, I had, I was on a diet and I was taking these dietary supplements, all these vitamins and my wife and I were, she was, I think four, four and a half months pregnant at the time five months, four, four or five months pregnant. We ran off to the store. I hadn't eaten any breakfast and I just swallowed all my vitamins and downed it with uh, some water. I started getting real nauseous as I'm driving to the store and we got to the store and I start getting real nauseous and I'm going, this is not good. I, I sometimes pass out when I puke. Um, cause I, I just don't breathe or take a breath or I just black out sometimes. And, uh, it happened and I luckily was outside. I was trying to get some air and passed out face down and knocked out about a tooth and a half out of my face. Uh. So we had to push the shoot back. Oh, not only that, my chin was like literally hanging off. I could stick my finger like in my face. Oh, and man. that was a really traumatizing moment for me because I, I've always taken really good care of my teeth you know, going through being an actor a lot of this time in LA, I never had medical insurance or dental insurance. And I always took pride of, uh, I do now, but I always took pride of, uh, taking care of my teeth and, uh, you know, not to be vain about it, but just always brushed and floss and brush the gums and just took care of them. And I had a dentist once that told me, he's like, your teeth will outlive you. You know, there's the real deep roots and they're strong and you keep them white and like I said, I didn't have a dentist or a dental insurance planner at the time. And, uh, luckily, um, we were able to get to a doctor and get, I went to the emergency room that gave me like seven stitches in my chin. And then they, they fixed my tooth at the dentist and I had to go back. It fell out once and I had to go back and like a couple nights later, they had to put it back in. It was really painful too. But, um, and then we went along and shot the rest of the movie and I guess you'd never notice, but, uh, I remember. Oh and yeah. I, I would know. hope. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't remember why, like, 
I don't think I, there, I, there is a reason why it happened. I think it's just kind of common fate or accidents happen kind of deal, but it was real weird and coincidental how it happened during shooting that movie. You know, and, and that's a very, uh, a very interesting point because, um, that's something that, um, I've, I've experienced a couple times on stage in dress rehearsals where I've come close to literally dying. And, you know, the, the question becomes, well, is this something based around what I'm doing as a performer and places I'm going and the basic karma around that, or is this an extra eye-opening experience that broadens the specter of your mind from where you were to now a whole new revelation of what's around you, Mm. you know, because now you, you went through something that was now you're questioning, (laughs) you're going, wow, is the, I mean, is this like, you know, it's something that just opens your mind to now things around you. Um, as simple as the fact that you just said, well, this might sound vain before that happened. You would have probably never said the words, well, this might sound vain. Maybe, you know? and, and maybe you're right. And also I think that the, because we shot had, had shot most of it the night before, literally the night before I was running on fumes. I was up in the morning I was yeah. exhausted. I got home at six o'clock in the morning. We shot overnight. And then the accident happens probably around, I don't know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock, early, late morning, early afternoon. And I partially think I was so sick from the thing. And it was like this dramatic, dramatic come down. And I, I think the vanity part when I said that is that I knocked my teeth out. The first thing happens is I'm waking up on the ground. My pregnant wife's crying over, over me. Oh my God. She thinks I'm dead or or something. I come to, and I, I spit my teeth out of my mouth. I dude, I've been hit in the mouth before hard. Sure. Okay. But like when you fall like a wet towel, the concrete wins, but I think it was partially just this dramatic come down, man. I didn't even know my chin was the chin skin was hanging. Like you can see bone. It was, I had no idea. I was worried about my teeth and I started having a panic attack and this guy's trying to sit me down and the ambulance are coming and my wife's freaking out. Just sit down. And I didn't know what it just happened. I knew that I puked and I passed out because that's happened before. And I've always told my wife, this is an issue. It happens about 50% of the time. And they checked me out. There's nothing wrong with me. And, but no one can really explain that except for the fact that you don't take enough breath in between your heaving. Right. Right. <laughs> but aside yeah. all of that, I think really what had happened was I had such an overwhelming sense of this like dramatic come down of what I just did the night before how tired I was emotionally exhausted. You know, you do these things a few times, you do these, these takes multiple times and you spend everything you've got. And 
No, not everyone out there can appreciate that. They just don't understand because they've never done what we do. But, and that's okay. You know, I'm not in it for that. You know, like I'm in it to give you a performance. I'm in it to to entertain you, to share a depth of humanity with you on screen and tell stories that way. And, And I think people appreciate that, but obviously no one knows what happens on the side you know, behind the scenes before, after, they don't care about that. And, and nor should they. As right. the actor, I can tell you that, you know, to go through playing these parts and to go through taking on these roles, that there's sometimes a physical reaction that you have. A mental reaction, a physical yep. reaction. It's, you're a human being. And so yep. when you go to these depths, you go to these places you know, and if it's not all, you know, fairy tales and la la land in the story and you're playing this pretty bad <laughs> guy, you know, it sits with you a little while because you touch into places with yourself that you didn't know existed. Or even if you did know they existed, you never really wanted to go there. Let me ask you on that. And you you kind of read my mind with that thought. And that is this. When you were doing your processing when you were doing the the homework and you start getting into that point where you're you're thinking about yourself and obviously you know personally that there are things about this character that you would have never uh have ever seen yourself doing right you you know that part of you is is non-existent in terms of what you've experienced in your life but at some point, did it hit you in your head of understanding that moment where you go, I understand this so much that now I'm questioning that could I have actually been that way myself? Okay, there's two parts to that answer, I think. The first part of the answer as an actor is, the work is about the character you're playing and the story that you're telling. So you have to be able to imagine a lot of different things. You have to be able to use your imagination to scoot yourself into those, that person's shoes. You have to understand the writing. It's it's sense of delivery. It's through lines, it's themes. What, what are the messages that are, it's trying to portray? And then you have to go, do I have the abilities as an artist to allow my interpretations to be correctly added and played and interpreted by others to this character. And if you can do that, then you should play the role. Um, Whether it scares the hell out of you or not, you should play. If it scares you, you should play that role. That means it's tapping into things that you may be bashful about, or you may be, insecure about but those are human qualities and those play very well on screen um when it comes to could i have been this guy i don't think so um i look and the, at the-, the only reason i say it that way is this as much as we um know ourselves as who we are there is a, a a part of us when we're making these discoveries about characters that I think you all of a sudden you, for a brief second, you relate something that is so close to 
putting yourself in like, I understand why it's done. And now it's like, okay, damn. Because I could see it through his eyes now. Maybe there was something in me that I question now about, oh my God, maybe I'm not the person I think I am because I actually understand this person. Mm, I think that's a great question. I think that's a question that poses itself to a lot of actors that find themselves at this crossroads. Yeah. I think that you have to be completely comfortable with yourself, even though we're totally insecure and we're totally, it's just, <laughs> I mean, that's a laughable statement, but there's a part of that statement that rings true. And actors that go and get trained, I know as for sure that trainers and coaches try to teach the actor to break free and peel the, the, the layers of the onion away because in order to tell a story, you both have to remove yourself and put yourself in it. If it's kind of an oxymoron, but you have to be able to take yourself out of your head of all the things that block you, like your insecurities, your, your, you're, you're, oh, how am I going to look on this? How do I, you got to take your, your complete self-consciousness that way. Your vanity, it's got to go. It's gone because then you're, if, if that's there, you're out of the moment, you're out of the character. You're not playing the character. If the character is an evil fuck, you got to play that. And yep. you have to play homage to that. You have to, you have to serve that character and that's what you got hired. And that's the role you accepted because it was interesting to you and you found something in it that, that pushes your buttons and triggers you. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd be a liar if I said there wasn't things in this character that probably didn't push my buttons or trigger me in certain ways. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, any actor that walks down a path of taking a role and going, this scares me. This is something that I have to be, that people might hate me. People might ridicule me. Well, they're going to, you know, look, there's, most people know that movies are, you know, play pretend and fun and games. But at the same time, us filmmakers that are really making these things, we want you to have a sense of reality when you're watching it. Oh, hell yeah. The only way we can deliver that to you is to play it as real as possible. And so to go back to your statement and your question, you know, yes, there are, there are moments in there where you go like, oh, damn, did I just say that? You know, like, did I just, and actually mean it? Well, yeah. Yeah. In that, as that character, in that moment, when the camera's rolling, when all bets are off, and there, and and what happens next matters to this entire project that you're just a piece of. Yeah, it matters, and you need to go there. And yeah, you do go home, and you go, man. I'm you, you, whatever it is that you believe in. You look up, and you go, hey, I'm sorry that I had to distribute these feelings and these emotions, and. But I'm sorry, but not sorry. You know, like you, you apologize, but you don't apologize. It's my job, you know. But as a human being, do I, would I be that person? Would I act that way in public, in person? As, as a, did I have those feelings in my heart? Absolutely not. I had to create those things. 
I had to find a bridge to this character that I had to build that was already pre-built with a primer called writing, you know, and as the actor, you're the vessel and you're riding on this huge body of water. That's the whole thing. Right. And so you have to find a way to, to navigate through that, pick it up along the way, fight all of the elements, you know, but not necessarily fight more embrace, let them affect you, let them take you over. And then when it's cut, rap let's go home you have to find a way to just cut rap and go home and i think a lot of part of the um craft in which we serve there is that you have to know when to turn it off i I look at people like um daniel day lewis who's personally my favorite actor of all time and i i've I have, I, I can go back into all the different decades, all the different eras of actors, which there's so many great ones. Yeah. As, a, as a male actor, he's my favorite. Um, and I understand why he retired. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever feel the same feelings he did. I hope not because I love what I do so much that I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Um, but when you watch that man and he's so incredibly method that, enough was just probably enough for him when you've done what he's had when you've done what he's done when you have what he's had and you have other skills you have a family you don't care about the press you don't care about hollywood it's a job that served you well that you're going to do until you can't do it anymore i looked at that out of him and i just i've i found so much respect for him and you know if i could if I could have a career like that, where I could, you know, do even just a lick of what he's done. I mean, every actor wishes this, but uh, I hope I never get sick of it um, or, or feel like I'm just exhausted from it. But um, I guess there might be a time and place like that for a man such as he, because he just gave it everything he had. And I try to do that same exact thing whenever I get a job as an actor and we're so fortunate to get a job when we do finally get work. Um, you give it all you have. You leave it all on the field. You don't leave anything behind. Um, because that's your moment. And that's the moment that you get to bring a part to this all-encompassing thing. And you'd be doing a disservice to not only yourself, but all of your castmates, the crew, the directors, the people working on this thing for months and years, if you didn't bring it. You know, so, yeah, um, that's, that's very well said, Um, you know, and it's funny because we're talking about all this heavy stuff um, because everything about this film is, is very heavy. Now on the flip side, you've, uh, you've been in a couple good uh, fodders as much as uh, the 18 year old virgin and mega shark versus giant octopus (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's so funny like i think 18 year old virgin like on voodoo is always like on sale for like 4.99 you know it's like yeah like you see this title come up all the time on there like you you have to scroll down like past like 50 films and then all of a sudden it's those titles and it's like i wish it was down like 500 films (laughs) 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 <laughs> but you know what's it, what's so fascinating about that is the fact that 
it's funny to to look at that and go, hey, when your career starts out, you really are taking what is kind of put in front of you because you have to take these steps. And like in anything that is a, um, a profession where it's maturity equals a, um, a better grasp of the actual profession and how it's actually done and what the craft is, you have to go through these early phases and be green in the field and learn, hey, this is, you know, this is the things to do. This is the things not to do. This is the things that don't matter. Um, these are the people who make things <laughs> that don't matter. Uh, how, how hard was it for you to, you know, to look at those, those first, uh, you know, number of years for you in LA, in a, in a town that also you're not from? Um, I know when I was there, you know, it, it takes that, man, that first year, two years, three years for you to start really being able to feel comfortable in your own skin in LA, let alone on sets and being an actor. Was that something that you look back on and you go, man, if I didn't have that, I would have probably never have grown. I probably would have never been able to, you know, get to the point where I'm at and continue to pursue my craft for a number of years. hundred percent. I mean, that's such a great question. Um, you know, my buddies give me crap about the 18 year old virgin all the time. <laughs> um, but you know what? Uh, equally, I, I look at those, those moments and yes, to answer your question, I, I, that I, I was in that place at that time. I had to take that part. No one else was giving me a job. This was a moment for me when I was doing student films, I was being an extra on, on a show called entourage. Um, <laughs> I yeah. love I love how you just said on a show called Entourage. Yeah, like like five people like have ever no one's ever heard of it. No, yeah. <laughs> in fact, a buddy of mine was the guy that plays E on it. And I've known a couple of people on the show, but he I know him the, the best on the show. Um, and yeah, man, and he didn't know me at the time, and I, the, I was working at a uh, voiceover studio. I was parking cars. I was a valet boy, and. Oh, this was the coolest moment. I mean, where I moved to LA, I lived in a car for two years. I had no money. I had no real, you know, go get him tiger kind of support. Um, I had to do it all on my own, you know, and I had to make something of myself because the dream that I had, no one else believed in it. Sure. And, I was parking cars at this place called the LA studio slash Margarita mix. There's three locations in LA and uh, yeah, it's one of those hyphenated names, but it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest um, not only post voiceover houses, but uh, just voiceover studio in general in Los Angeles. And I was the only kid valeting the cars there. And I met, everybody man we could have a podcast session just on this alone but to cut it short i was parking cars there in 110 degree heat one day and um this young gal named christy romano um she used to play the voice of kim possible which was what she was recording in there at the time 
And uh, she came out to leave. I gave her her keys and brought her car up for her. And she goes, hey, Dustin, um, you know, I think you'd be really great in this part. I know you're trying to be an actor and everyone loves you here. And I was like, wow, really? That's, that's a really nice thing to say, you know? Um, and she's like, well, my fiance, uh, who's a friend of mine today, and they're not together anymore, but his name is Griff first. And, uh, sure, yeah. She, yeah. and she goes, uh, yeah, my, my fiance Griff is shooting this sci-fi channel movie called a hundred million BC. And, uh, we would, I'd love to see if he'd uh, take a look at you and maybe you can be in it and get a part in there and get you some, you know, get you on your way. And I go, wow. I mean, wow. It was just, so, I was totally beside myself from that whole interjection into my life because all the people I was meeting up to that point were like, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen and Ben Stiller and uh, Jerry Seinfeld and, Angelina Jolie, it goes on and on and on and on. Um, parking their cars, right? Yep. Hey, what do you do? I'm trying to be an actor, you know? And uh, she's the one, Christy, yeah. comes out and says, you know, here's this opportunity. I'm Give me your headshot. And I go, oh, yeah, I've got a headshot. It's my back seat. Run over to my car. I already had them all prepared. They'll stay the way it used to be back in the day. You'd staple your resume to the back. My resume was like, yes, student films and extra work and trying hard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Gave her, gave her my, my resume. I got a call from uh, her fiance and ended up inviting him to my apartment and going, hey, man, do you like shark? Why shark? Because I lived, I used to live next to this Asian market in the valley and they sold shark there and I love to cook. I cook. And I'd been eating shark lately. And I was like, Hey dude, do you like shark? And he was like, uh, yeah. Why don't you bring Christy over to my house? I'm going to barbecue some shark. (laughs) (laughs) Bring the script. We'll talk about it. And uh, so, I mean, he actually did came over. We found out we had mutual friends, by the way, which was really nice. Shout out to Mike Hughes and Ponsky. Um, I'll get to that in a second. But comes over, brings her over, have a glass of wine. I'm cooking for him. And uh, my, my best friend at the time was my roommate, Connor Gomez. He's also an actor. They knew him, too, from going to that studio. He, he worked at the other studio, right? <laughs> so we all kind of knew each other. And we're like, oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Shark, right? It wasn't dry. It was good. And then uh, they're about to leave. Puts the script on my coffee table. Says, "Hey, man, yeah, read that and call me." I'm like, oh crap! <laughs> what do I do? You know, like I wow, I got a, I got an opportunity. Holy crap, dude! I'm, I'm not an extra, you know. And yeah. so, um, well, at least try not to be in this moment. And so, I, I picked this thing up. I had no idea. I had no, I had no training. I was totally green. Read this thing until like four o'clock in the morning that night. I'm just like going through it. And um, I didn't know how to read a script and how to pull the character out. And uh, I called them the next day, tired. I'm, I worked at the studio. I'm parking people's cars. I get home and I'm like, hey, Griff, I'm done reading it. And uh, I like this character. And he's like, all right, I'm going to come over. He comes over. And uh, we sit down for a little bit. We hang out and I go, hey, man. I like this character. 
I want to play this guy. And he goes, under Michael, Gro- you want to play the young Michael Gross? Like in time travel, he, you come back as him? And I'm like, yeah, man, the Tremors guy. And he goes, you don't look anything like him. And I'm like, I know. And I go, but that's what makeup's for, dude. And he was like, he's like, dude, he's like, why don't you just pick out one of the Navy SEALs or something? And I'm like, I don't want to play a fucking Navy SEAL, dude. You know, like not in this movie. And um, not that the Navy SEAL is not a cool role, but I kind of knew yeah. what that was, right? And he goes, he liked, he liked my pitch. And, and he goes, all right, you know what? I'm going to give you the part. The other guy's fired. I'm going to fire him. I'm going to give you the part. Kill it. Kill it for me. This is like, this is, this kind of interaction has never happened since. Like they've all been way different than that. Okay. Let me assure you. But that was like, that was basically my intro to Dustin becoming an actor. All the other stuff before that was like kind of destiny. Getting me in the right place. I had to meet the right people, say the right things, I guess. And, and yeah. it's not that you're trying to do that. It's that, it's that you just got to be yourself and you're, you don't really, when you're like a young 20 something, you don't know who the hell you are really. And you're just dumb, you know? So you're trying to just get through it. And I'm lucky that he saw something in me and that Christy saw something in me and they gave me a shot to do that movie. And, and um, the producer from that f- um, film company, which was called uh, the asylum, they do a lot of the great right. mega shark versus white o- giant octopus you know, Sharknado and all that. In fact, there's, so the executive producer, one of the owners of the company, his name's David Michael Latt. God bless him. I mean, he, uh, to go back to what we were talking about with these early movies, after I did that first one, 100 million BC, uh, he put me in four more after that. And I was like, wow, you know, like I've got a, I've got a role here. It wasn't paying me much money, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, but it was giving me a lot of exposure. It was giving me a lot of chops and, and a lot of repetition time to actually be on set working with other actors that it used to work a long time ago, maybe still working. And I worked with some cool names like Lorenzo Lamas, Debbie Gibson in those movies. And so um, I'm like, holy crap. Um, and then, you know, I did four of those, four, four or five of those. And then that was it. And I went on and, had, I had about two years of just nothing happening. And uh, after that, and that's when I met Raul, I was just going, I'm going to go back to square one, go hit all the, the, the film schools. I'm not getting any, audi- you know, all the auditions I was getting, I was getting no, 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 no. So I, I joined acting class after I did the first movie. Um, and I just decided to dedicate myself to becoming good. And then I was going to be great at it. Because there's no completion or masterful sort of mastery at acting. Acting goes along with your life. You yep. know, you get older, you change. Your voice changes. Your physique changes. Your intellect changes. So I decided that I wanted to just succumb to being a student of this craft because I loved it and fell in love with it so much that that's what I had to do. And luckily, along the way, it's brought morsels for me and it's brought little jobs here and there. And then some decent sized jobs. And so who knows what's going to happen from there, man, you know? Um, you know, in uh, looking at uh, things you've done, um, you also sent me a little uh, podcast that you just started. Um, it's called true darkness. Um, the first episode is 15 minutes. 
and it's a fucking brilliant concept. Thank I, you. It, it no, well, I can't say no one. I I don't know all the podcasts that are out there that are kind of around that kind of genre, but it's like listening to a nineteen thirties, uh, you know, radio show. It, That's it just, exactly what so I was going for. Dude, that's amazing you said that because I haven't had any feedback on this yet. Um, and that I appreciate that compliment. Thank you. Uh, and I, I hope that it reaches more listeners like yourself that enjoy that kind of stuff because making this thing has been incredibly difficult and time consuming because I'm a one man band on it. Um, I had to, I've had to learn to acquire all these different skills of editing and because I love voiceover work, but yeah. then you have to learn about what an engineer does and what <laughs> a director does and what a writer does, and what, a, what a producer does, and then what an editor does. Yep. So having to take my time for the past couple of years to learn how to do all that and then coming up with this concept for this show, um, it, I was nothing but thrilled to finally put out my first episode and my next episode is going to be coming out tomorrow. Uh, nice. which is what is tomorrow the 11th um or the 10th tomorrow's the 10th well, somewhere uh, yeah somewhere around there um yeah because 12 is friday yeah 12th yeah, yeah it'll be out it'll be out around that time um so episode two i appreciate you saying that the concept is something that i go back to in the deep dark parts of my twisted little creative imagination if you will um these stories are some of them are adapted so i do research and i find these stories and then i go how can i how can i retell this story in a way where i'm not putting anybody at jeopardy but also telling their story because it's badass <laughs> you know what i'm saying uh, um the first one you heard was actually a complete fictitious story that i made up and I remember my uncle, my great uncle, Tony, I've had some family members that fought in World War II and just remembering little snippets about how they would talk about uh, some of their war experiences, if you could get them to, right? Um, I have a brother, my brother, David Harnish, um, is a combat veteran, decorated combat veteran. I uh, served in Afghanistan. He was in the, the, the special forces of the army. He was a Green Beret. Um, he served, I want to say for eight or nine years, nine years. And, wow. uh, you know, he, it's really tough to get him to talk about anything. In fact, you know, I, I, I wouldn't share any of his stories, but, um, just listening to somebody like him explain something that's so deep, so dark for themselves that, that they went to a place that we just can't imagine. Yeah. And they had do it for real and to to imagine that is is breathtaking and so i'm looking at when i looked at that first episode i wrote it and i go you know i'm, I'm such a, a fan of veterans in general not just because they're in my own family but because i like to look at myself as you know i'm a patriotic guy i mean i'm not a i'm not a trump supporter right but uh i'm, I'm a patriotic guy in terms of um I love American history. There's a lot of stains on it. We have a lot of dirt. We're not perfect, but I love that we are a free country that P 
people died and fought for us and bled for us and they still do. And I think that's the most important part. And I think uh, I had to pay an homage to that and tell one of those stories, even though it was a derived story, you know, something that I created from my head, it very easily could have happened with all the movies you've watched with all the stories you've been told by an uncle or a grandpa. That's why I told it the way I did, because I felt like it was one of those stories that probably our grandparents or uncles knew. Yep. And this next story, um, I'm not going to give anything away. Um, It is an adaption about a real tough, big mountain man guy who goes to battle with a certain element of mother nature. (laughs) And the story itself and all of the stories, you know, my log line is stories of unfortunate deaths told throughout human history, told by a mysterious figure. Right. Now, the figure could be death. You know, the figure could be a vampire. The figure could be Dracula. He could be anything you want him to be. But I think the at the end of the day, I don't want to treat the audience like they're stupid, but I don't come right out and say it. But he's death, right? You, you got death telling you these stories, which is from his book of deaths, right? The, at least the ones that count for him, the, the interesting ones, that, the ones worth hearing. And so... Um, yeah, this podcast is a lot of fun and I'm doing this all right now because I have a little bit of downtime. I want to segue a little bit into that. Um, I've been working with, I have a couple of other skills on the side. I work with my hands as a, uh, as a finisher, a wood finisher and a custom coat finisher, um, both in the, you know, wood finishing and metal finishing and painting, all that kind of stuff. And I'm doing that with my brother right now. His name is Jeremy Harnish, and he has a company called JH Wallpaint. Um, if you go on his Instagram, it's called at JH Wallpaint. His name is Jeremy Harnish. Um, you can see all the cool stuff he's doing, and I'll post stories about it once in a while and uh, mention it in my, you know, on my timeline and stuff because it is good. I feel to be as a as a human being to be a well-rounded guy. I mean, if I had told you how many jobs I've had in my life just to survive. Yeah. He'd be, like, be like, what? Yeah. I have a yeah. friend, named, I have a friend named Paul Nyhart who just, he laughs every time I, he, he thinks it's so funny, all the jobs that I've had. And I, and I mean, I don't blame him because I look back and I go like, gosh, I've worked everywhere. I've done almost everything with the exception of a few things. I mean, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that, but I've worked in a lawyer's office. I mean, I've done everything from digging holes to scooping shit, to painting walls, to chauffeuring famous people, to, uh, you know, delivering pizzas, to cooking in a kitchen, to, uh, you know, landscaping your backyard. I, I do. I'm not kidding you right now. And it, yeah. it, it keeps going. Um, I think, a lot of that plays for me and I've, I've always hoped that it would as an actor, because it's given me elements of humanity and all the day-to-day person yep. to go in and play anything that I might need to pull from, you know, in my bag of tools, if you will. Yeah, no, it's, and um, I think it's very hard for um, people that I've, you know, known uh, in my life 
to understand that aspect. I, it's really funny too when um, the pandemic hit, and there was you know after X amount of time of lockdown, there was this talk about like how people are kind of just losing their minds essentially because they're home every day and they're not going anywhere or doing anything. And it's like, boy, I mean, that's been parts of my life as an actor where you, you're spending so much time with nothing to consume your time where yeah. you have to find, you know, anything, if it's a job, if it's, you know, um, you know, going to different places just to, you know, take in the surroundings, take in the people, um, you know, get in touch with Mother Nature in L.A. where you can go to the mountains, you can go to the hills, you can go to the beach, um, you can go to, you know, a, a more dangerous part of town. And, you know, um, there, there's so much that you can absorb when you're not actually um, acting that will prepare you like you said for the the moments where that opportunity happens and you start you know and it's something as simple to i've found over the years that you can read one or two lines and all of a sudden your brain just goes oh shit yeah 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 and it's like all of a sudden you're an italian juggler in the 1920s but yeah. it was something that you read that it sparked something that you pick from, from seeing or feeling or smelling that all of a sudden it gets the ball rolling. Um, so that now you're prepared when you go in, whether an audition or on set to now play a, a beautiful game of catch because you're giving something to someone. And I think that's a key that a lot of actors miss. They don't know how to give. They know how to take. They, you know, put the attention on me, man. I can, I can shine. Mm -hmm. But the actors are the ones who really, by a look, by an intonation, by something coming from the inside, you are giving something to that person and hell man, if it's their job to shine, you know, if you're doing a scene with Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise has got to shine. Yeah. But he only shines and his best movies are with actors who allow him to, from what they know how it's do. It's, it's, I mean, I'm sure people are going, God, man, shut the fuck up about <laughs> acting theory, but it's, it's no, dude, you're you're incredibly correct. I mean, I, not to cut you off, but I had to, I have to interject because what you're saying is so incredibly deep and so poignant. Um, your performance as an actor is only as good as your partner's performance, and that is exactly to sum up what you're saying. And I couldn't reiterate that enough to any of up and coming actors, new actors, because if you can understand that if you can stick around for the moment where you're not on camera and you've, you've done the same monologue 25 times, 50 times that day, but now it's his or her turn to shine. And they need that moment from you to draw from them what they need. Um, you got to be there. You got to show up. You got to be a team player. You have to show up and be there for your teammate. 
But when you're making a movie or even a play or a TV show, you're a teammate on a big team. You're, yeah. you're not everything, you know? Um, and I don't think that matters if you're Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Denzel Washington, you know, or Michael Pena. You know, I think yeah. why those guys are who they are is because they understand that too. Yeah. And when you get a performance from guys like that, it's because that they understand that from all the experiences they've had in their life, from falling down and getting up from failing, that's what allows you to succeed. When you failed enough, you can finally succeed because failure brings you to succession. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a realization, I think, because you're allowing yourself to, to accept that failure is just an inevitable part of the, the succeeding process. And I'll take, I'll take that one step further. Cause I love that, that idea. My, you know, wh what I found that for me works and a lot of times directors won't understand it at first. Um, and that is I process, I can, I can, I can know, what I'm going to be doing, but I want to fucking suck right away because I want to explore just the, sh just the shit, get the shit out of my system so that now, okay, we're ready. There you go. And now you're seeing where it comes from and what we're going through. And I, I toyed a little, I played a little, you, it's like taking a Play-Doh, right? And you're, you know, you're rolling out this and you're rolling out that, but eventually you're going to put it through that processor that makes it look like the shape or that, you know, whatever the formation is. But if you don't mess around with it and break it apart a few times, it's never going to develop into that completed thing. And it's never going to allow me to give you what you need to realize, shit, I never felt that before because now the moment's real. Yeah, but like it's like what you said before back, of, uh, you know, a few minutes was uh, being able to pass the ball. That's a huge deal. What that means is for any for the listeners out there, what he meant by that is, is that you're listening. When you allow yourself to be a listener, you, you, you subject yourself to be in the moment with somebody else, which means that you've taken all the attention away from yourself and allowed yourself to truly digest and take in the way they're feeling, their actions, their reactions, and what's, what's going on with them. And that's what creates an organic and natural reaction from yourself. And you can't get that if you're not listening. And I think that's what's great about the best actors we've ever seen is that they're great listeners. They have the ability to tune in and stay tuned in, locked in like a hawk on a mouse, yeah. you know, to where nothing gets by them left, right, forward, straight up, down. It, they're, they're there with you. And so that's how you play catch. You get the ball. Ooh, that, that was hard. You throw it back that hits them a certain way. And, and, and this is a, you know, an analogy for the way we speak to each other and how we say things we don't mean and how yeah. we say things that we, we wish we hadn't to, and it hurt their feelings. 
Or how when you just smile at someone that's walking by you, that's a complete stranger, 90% of the time they smile back, you know, it's those things, you know, that's why you can't judge people, you know, like people do obviously, but judgment is just so false. It's such a fallacy as to, as opposed to really digging into listening and looking and actually making an interpretation that has value because you actually invested the moment to be in the moment. And, and, and judgment is a way of validating your own self by not risking anything because you don't know anything about the person you're making a judgment upon. Totally. So, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, for me, and the fun of it is, again, I like to explore, I like to explore being bad because of the fact that I like challenging myself through those fears, knowing that, hey, man, my insecurities, everything I, I can take to this, I'm just going to let them hang out. And it, it might not play. It might not play. We're, we're, we're learning. We're, we're, we're testing. We're feeling. And then you start really throwing that ball back and forth. And when you get that momentum going, um, one of my favorite things to do is watch an actor like Marlon Brando. Don't really pay attention to when he's talking per se. But watch him while he's listening. Watch yeah. him. And it's like, it's, it's phenomenal. And I think, too, that what's interesting is now we live in an age where we have the cameras and we're obsessed with video, right? But back then, you lived in an age where you needed a black and white still to sell the image of someone. And when you took stills from movies... And you have these iconic shots of these actors and they're in the moment of whatever scene. And it's, you know, a nice, you know, close up picture of them. That's saying something, think of Brando and the Godfather. There's that famous picture. He's just, it's just him with his chin out and it's just his, and you know, every fucking thing about that character just by looking at that picture. Yeah. And it's not talking to you. (laughs) It's not moving. That's it's right. Just, it's 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 fascinating. And those actors get those moments captured on film because they're trusted. You know, and and that's another thing that is amazing as well. You know, when you when you gain the trust as the artist uh, from your peers, from the filmmakers yeah. and they go, "We know we can hang on this guy in the moment because he's got something more going on for us." And those accidents, those accidents win awards, you know, like those, those mistakes, they're not mistakes. They might've been a mistake or they might not have been in the script, but they're what made the film or they're what made that moment, or they finally gave you who that guy was or that gal, you know? Um, Yeah. I, I I've often hung on those things myself when I was coming up as a kid and being very, very um, intrigued by actors. Um, you know, I was a musician all my life before I became an actor and music gave me that same thing, but it kind of put a picture in my head when I would play it. I was a drummer and also a singer play a couple other instruments, but drums were like, I'm a very physical hands-on kind of person and the drums embody that 
And I had sort of a troubled childhood. I came from a really good family, but they were separated and I had some dark spots in my life. And playing the drums used to let me alleviate my pain, my sure. anguish, my bad thoughts, my any, anything that was just, it just cured me. You know, it gave, it was like my medicine. And it wasn't until later, well, in high school where I found the theater and, you know, I had no acting, um, no filmmaking or any type of influence from anybody in the small town I went to school in. It was called Hollister, California. It's up in Northern California. And I'd moved around a bunch as a kid. So this was just, I was another, another transplant in this place and went to seventh, eighth, and then all the way to senior year in high school uh, there. And I was bullied and no one understood me. And I had some really, really, uh, maybe three really good friends there in total, but I, I had a real tough time in school and music was my way out. Yeah. And then I found this, the theater and I had no idea what the hell I was doing. All I know is I watched a lot of movies and TV and I, I wanted to do that. I felt like I had a piece of me that was yearning to tell stories like that. And when I went and joined the theater class, the first thing they casted me in was Hamlet <laughs> as Hamlet. <laughs> I was ah. like, huh? And had to ah. kind of learn this language. And here I am living in this like little, you know, cow town, you know, everyone's got like this flat bill hat and driving these lifted trucks and the soul patch, you know, <laughs> nothing against that guy, but that's, that was, and as it was never me, you know? And so, um, I kind of separated myself, separated myself from at least that kind of audience and, and decided that, well, I want to speak to everybody. You know, I, I have a deep love for people, even people I don't know. And I don't know why that is, but, I always felt a deep level of compassion for people. And I think that's what inevitably drew me to be an actor is because I wanted to tell their story, you know? Yeah. yeah and it's interesting too. I think, um, you know, when I was young, I, I started singing uh, as well. And um, what's interesting about it is I find, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting to see, um, you know, certain singers, a song becomes a hit. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times rock singers, it's it's a connection with the audience more so and, and doing, you know, live shows in, in a way of um, they're, they're performing. Um, but the good storytellers are the ones who, when they're singing the words you're actually seeing the story through their eyes, through their, through their intonations. Mm -hmm. it, it's just fascinating that we can take something like music and, you know, bring it in, put it into the context of acting or um, same thing. You take acting and put it in the context of music. This way, you know, right now, Lady Gaga has got the, um, that new film that's uh, coming out um, very soon. Um, and for life of me, I can't remember the title, but it looks phenomenal. Dude, she's a really good actor, man. Unbelievable. She's 
great. She's great, dude. It, did you? What was the A Star Is Born? Did you just watch her, dude? Oh man! And then she's in American Horror Story. I think it was like a couple uh, seasons ago. Yeah, dude, killer in that, killer in that. I, I love watching musicians. Every time I see a musician become a really, really, really good actor, I always go like, "Yeah," because yeah. it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like taking one for the team. Um, yeah. I really enjoy that because the artists, you know, we're not limited necessarily to one thing. Yes, we have particular sets of skills, but that doesn't necessarily limit us from broadening our horizons this is why you see actors become directors and producers you see musicians become actors directors and producers you see painters uh, yeah. you know artists do the same thing um look we, we live the, this life that we're walking through and we don't really know how it ends right we have no idea when our ticket gets punched we, we have no idea how that's going to happen and so we're fascinated by all of these different things and by all of these different things that nuance us, that make us different, whether yeah. you, in the moment someone's hating on it or shitting all over it. The reality is they're doing that is because they're fascinated by it. They're interested in it. They love it just as much as you and I do. They just, where they come from, they're injured, they're abused. They don't get attention. And so they got to treat other people like that and artists and, but to go back to the, and sometimes artists be, are, used to be those people, yeah. you know, and become what they become. Uh, there's a walk, a different walk of life, you know, in, in every lane, you know. And so you look at guys like Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. you know, that's troubling, you yeah. know, because what a talent he was. Oh, my. I used to watch movies and go, wow, dude, that guy's so incredibly deep. Um, and then to hear how he dies. Yeah. It's like it's same with Chris Cornell, you know? Yeah. Same with Jimi Hendrix, same with uh Jim Morrison, same with uh a lot of different guys. Like the I'll 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 go and say it. Um, you know, for for my generation, which you're close to, it's Kurt Cobain. Um, oh, yeah, that's totally my generation, dude. I mean, I was born in 1983. You know, I have no, I mean, I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast the other day and they were literally just talking about Kurt Cobain and how that guy just came in and smashed the mouth of the entire music industry. And these guys didn't know what the fuck to do. They're like, it was hair bands. It was like, you know, makeup. And all of a sudden these guys from, you know, Seattle come along that are like dark and have some real shit to say, you know, bam, just it all scatters to the side. Um, and yeah, man, you know, like what, that's, that's reality though. Yeah. That happens every day. That is an everyday guy. Him. Yep. You know, yeah, he's a super mega life changing, music changing, scene changing rock star, but he was just a guy like all of us having problems just like the rest of us, you know, and he dealt with them a little different, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, it's and, and it's fascinating. I mean, we can probably talk for a couple more hours, um, but let's uh, get to one of the last things I, I do want to ask you about and, and about being a regular guy. Um, 
man, you, you, you're a new dad, man. What's, uh, <laughs> what has that been for you in terms of how you see the world now through the eyes of a person who has a very young child in one of the most devastatingly important times in human existence and, and knowing that you're the present, but your child is the future. Mm. I was, I love the way you put that question together because it's a, it's a tough one and it's, it's just like the grit through the whole, it's like even the answer, you know, first off, having a child is like the most life-changing thing that's ever happened to me. I mean, she's the most beautiful, stunning little girl. I feel incredibly lucky every day I wake up and I get to go, wow, that's my kid. You know, because uh, it could have went any way. She could have been born with no arms and legs, blind, you know, had some sort of autism or something. And, you know, nothing against people that are born that way because but they didn't want to be born that way. That's for darn sure. And, you know, and that's something you think about when you have a child is like you selfishly kind of go like, Oh God, I hope all her arms and limbs and brain and eyes work, you know, and when they, when they come out and they look at you for the first time and they just look into your eyes with their, barely open into the world eyes, it changes you instantly. Your life flips around 180 degrees in an instant. Everything you ever thought or felt before changes. The way you looked at things before changes. Not everything, but some things. And um, you're just, you change because it's not about you anymore. You realize that and you sort of kind of learn to accept that. I think that scares a lot of people off about having yeah. a kid. Um, I personally think it did me well. I personally think that it gave me all the changes that I needed. And I'm always going to be changing and evolving as an, as a person, because that never stops until we die. Right. But, um, I look at my daughter every single day and my wife and I go, first of all, you know, I knew when I married my wife that she was going to be an incredible mother. And I don't know that a lot of people think that about their woman when they meet her or their mate. I just knew it. I knew it immediately. And she just has it built in her like to be a mom and watching from the time she was pregnant through all the months of going through being a pregnant woman, you know, and then finally have like the way she changed and the way she just put herself completely aside and made it all about the baby and still does the same exact thing. Now it's just incredible to watch and to see that baby come out and that she did that. My wife did that. She made that happen every single day that she spends with her and I go to work and she stays here with the kid. And then when we're together and we have family time, and our kid is so happy 
and she smiles. She does these huge, like, ah, smiles. And it's like, I cry thinking about it, man. I mean, I, it's turned me into totally a big giant sap. <laughs> and I was kind of already a sensitive sap before, but this is a different sap because now it's like, I kind of hardened a little bit in certain areas, but she just breaks that rock all the way down. And it, it makes you feel a, 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 an abundance of compassion about everything else, all other children, other people. You look at people different and you go like, that was someone's baby. That's someone's daughter or son. And so it makes you think differently, like when you talk to them or how you react to them or what you might think about them. You're not as quick to go right to the negative or the, you know, poke fun or the whatever happens before we're parents, you know, um, I've never been the bully type or the poke fun type, but we've all done a little bit of, you know, having our yeah. fun with each other, even as friends. But now you look at that differently when you're a parent and you go like, would I want someone talking to my daughter that way? Would I want someone thinking that about my daughter? Would I want someone doing that to my daughter? Would I do that to somebody else knowing that that could be my daughter? Not a chance. So I just feel like you change to sum that all up. And it's the, probably the best thing that's ever happened to me, man. And isn't it fascinating that that concept of looking at everyone as if they are someone's son or daughter is something that we should all be doing because everyone is someone's Some, son or daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's, that's a way to, you want to solve issues. You want to solve, you know, humanity's problems, treat each other. Like you would want your son or daughter to be treated. And, um, you know, that's, it's amazing. And again, I think that, like you said, that, that sappiness, that sentimentalness, um, that goes to the fact that when you were just saying all these beautiful things about observation and, and how you think differently about this person, look at this thing different, you tie it back into what we do, because now you have a better understanding when you walk onto a set of hey when i'm you know in the moment man it really is you know this person this person might be a fucking lunatic that i'm talking to but damn it i'm gonna get through to them because they're someone's son or they're someone's daughter you know and it's it's such a different way that i think a lot of you know we don't think about this shit and I think that that's the most incredible thing is to hear those words at sentiment as, as a father looking at, like you said, the biggest smile in the world, man. And it's just like, boy, this is, that's what we try to do as creators of entertainment and art, right? We want our audience to have the biggest smile in the fucking world because we're bringing this thing to life. And, you know, you can't make the production smile, but you can make the audience smile. And it's just, it's just cool to hear how you now see it. You, you get that, you get what it's about, man. And it's, it's phenomenal. And, um, um, again, without giving any, anything away, 
boy, I just wonder how much subconsciously in your mind that your wife's pregnancy was feeding into your performance. Dude, <laughs> you, you got some really good questions. No, it's, it's, it's so valuable um, to know that and to ask that because, dude, it plays. And <laughs> thinking to myself, is that the scumbag you want to be? Absolutely not. You know, it is, do people like that guy exist? hundred percent. Are all cops like that? No. But that guy needs to be outed. Yeah. You know, that guy's the bully at school that needed so much attention because maybe he was molested at home or yeah. because maybe he was picked on by his father or mother, or maybe he had to eat pop tarts every single day and walk 10 miles to school and no one cared about him. And that guy became a cop to show them all. And so that's scary yeah. because people are people, people have feelings, they're sensitive. They have memories. They have, they have a heart and soul and that can be clouded and that can be darkened, hardened. And I think the only real way to soften someone's heart sometimes is to actually something has to happen to them, whether it, whether it's nature or it's them falling on their own sword or it's just loving them, whether you don't want to love them, you know, I've noticed that. Let me give you a quick story, not to go way down the weeds here, but I think here's a perfect example. I was bullied in school, right? This big bad guy in my high school. He was could have just squashed me like a bug. I'm not the biggest guy. I'm also not the smallest guy, you know. Um, but this guy could have squashed me like a bug. And he was a far more mature than I was. I was only 15 or 16 at the time. I want to say 15. So I was a I was a, a freshman. This guy was Johnny Big Dick, you know, senior quarterback, right? And I played football. Um, and because I was the new, you know, different guy there, people just had it out for me sometimes. And I never really understood why, because I was pretty nice to people. I just wanted to be friends with people and not everyone wants to be your friend. And this guy wanted to fight me, you know, like he, I was friends with someone else over here and I didn't know that they, this was a problem with him. Right. And, so the guy came up and started this big issue with me and embarrassed me and humiliated me in front of all these people that I didn't know yet. And that was my introduction to high school. Right. And I remember just taking it and looking at him and I started to walk away. He came towards me one more time and I turned around and I said, Hey man, are you okay? Like, are you all right? And he changed his whole disposition. And I was scared to death. But I literally, I removed myself and I just kind of asked him, I'm like, is everything okay, man? You seem like you're going through something. Because we don't know each other. And I really don't know why you're seeking me out. You can clearly squash me like a bug. So why are you 
Is everything all right? And I, I shit you not, man. We talked about it for an hour. Became friends. <laughs> you know, and I'm not necessarily saying I would be friends with this guy today because he was kind of a jerk off, but maybe I would because maybe who he really was was the guy that I got out of him. Right. You know, uh, and I think sometimes we just have to ask ourselves those questions. And I, you hope maybe sometimes people ask those questions about you because often when we get judgment passed on us or someone just writes us off, it feels pretty shitty. You know, and we don't understand why. Like, why was I treated that way? Why? Why? But you really, that's not even your concern because it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think what, what matters is human connection and, and what you do next, the way you conduct yourself. You know, it doesn't matter what the next guy does. I think you just maybe try to lead by example with that, you know, and it's just hard. It's scary. Not everyone can do that, but. You know, it's just like maybe try it once in, in, in whoever's listening to this in your day to day, like if whatever you're going through, whatever you're feeling, whatever you've been through in the past, you know, a good a good game changer is just smiling at somebody random, smiling at a random stranger on the street. You know, it can change a lot of things. It can change their life. That could, could change your life. You know, it kind of gives you that direct feedback of like uh i'm alive then you made them feel alive which is why it made you feel alive you connected connection rather than just shut down connect you know it means something yeah absolutely and i think that you know one of the the all-time famous sayings is all the world's a stage and I think when we hear that, we don't really process what it really means. And that means everyone is acting all the time, you know, and um, it's really hard to um, disarm someone from the character that they're portraying, mm-hmm. uh, that they need to portray, or, you know, um, you know, the, the reason that people play the bully is because them themselves were either bullied or are bullied by you know adults or parents or or, you know and um and it's it's you're you're right when you disarm someone when you take that moment um when you see someone on the street it's it's amazing that we can easily turn an eye to avoid conflict but if we engage a lot of times in eye contact for for just that brief moment and not not the quick turn you know where you look in someone's eye and then you kind of turn away because oh this person you know oh my god because you now project you know oh, that person's crazy uh no 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 just give that quick you know that quick look and that, that little smile and you're right it can make someone's day go from you know, being one of the shittiest to, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe I got a little something going on here that I don't really realize. And it's just fascinating, man. It's, it's fascinating. And I'll tell um, you what, man, I, I was homeless. I lived in a car when I first moved here. I know what it feels like to be looked at like you don't exist. Yeah. I know what it feels like to be invisible. And 
that might not ring a bell for a lot of people. It might ring a bell for a lot of people. I don't know. Um, I know that I wouldn't want anyone to feel that way or have gone through what I went through there. Um, but maybe it was teaching me something. It definitely was. Yeah. But I, I definitely know what it feels like to, to not exist, to, to not be, to be captured by somebody, to not be um, listened to, to not be heard, to not be seen, to just be re- regarded as just garbage. Yeah. Know what that feels like. And there's a lot of people that get treated that way. And so that's why I think it's important that if your life isn't that way, or even if it is, the best thing you can do is try smiling at somebody. It's like that old Frank Sinatra song, you know, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, the whole world smiles with you. It's true. You know, and then when you're crying, you know, the rain comes, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, you know, I think there's something really to that, man. But um, not to go down a, you know, a somber note, I think we've gone down some really beautiful discussion topics, but uh, I don't know. There's a part of that that just plays a large part in who I am. And, and I, I appreciate you asking those questions because, uh, you know, had I not gone through those things, I don't think I'd be here right now. I don't think I'd be in this position. I don't think I'd be in this job, in this field. I may not understand it the same way. No. And, um, you know, um, it's, you know, we can't, we can only control the decisions we make that are put in front of us. And the worst thing that you can do is look at something and go, why was I afraid to make this choice instead? And I think that, um, you know, I had, a, I had a buddy who in LA um, did the same thing. He was he was in his car for you know practically I think uh, two years as well. And the thing was, is hey, bro, dude, cut. We said we were getting together at nine a.m., but you literally parked across the street and just slept in your car. Why didn't you just ring my buzzer, man? come on in grab the couch or something bro and he's like no no man i I was good and it's like wow he he knew he knew it's like hey man i could i could ask of you this but this is who i am and i'm just gonna you know until i'm in the position where you know i'm i'm not living out of my car I'm not going to ask any favors. I'm not going to expect to, you know, get something from you. And it's like, fuck, that's really, that's a lot, man. That's a lot of sacrifice because it's like, you know, then you look at yourself and you go, could I, could I do that? Could I do that? Well, that's Um, that's the thing, you know, like my mom gets pissed off whenever I talk about this being homeless thing, because, uh, and rightfully so, I, you know, we didn't have a terrible amount of money when I was growing up, but, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to go and air out all of our dirty laundry too much, but that's a different podcast. But, uh, <laughs> um, 
my mom worked very hard and she had to work multiple jobs until she met my first stepfather and we were living at my grandparents. We had to share a twin bed, like the size of my kitchen, which is really small. Um, and she had to go to work every day and I'd stay at home with my uncles and there were these Italian guys, you know, and uh, I loved them to death, but um, we weren't supposed to be living there. Right. And uh, my mom met this cowboy they were married for about seven or eight years. And he taught me a lot about being a man. My mom probably taught me more about being a man than most of the men figures in my life. And don't get me wrong. I have some awesome men figures in my life. My dad, number one, uh, Bill, my first stepdad, Hugo, my second stepdad, they're all still in my life and they're great. And I'm phenomenally lucky to have all of them. Um, You know, but my mom didn't, my mom does very well for herself nowadays. Back then, you know, she was a hardworking, you know, upper class lady, but she wasn't rich. You know what I mean? And she hates to hear me talk about going out and being homeless and, and living in my car, but they wanted me to stay home and go to college. I didn't want that. And because I didn't do that, I also didn't get the level of support that I probably most people would have, you know, I don't know. I'm just saying from my experience, but um, I didn't get much support. You know, like I had to, I lived in a car for fuck's sake. You know what I'm saying? I ate garbage. You know, I had to go mop the Chinese fast food, you know, restaurant to just get a plate of chow mein. Yeah. Cleaning people's shit. Yeah. But that, that look, that came and went and it was all interesting. The day my mom was in a, when Blockbuster still ex- existed and she saw 18 year old version <laughs> on the, it was my second movie I'd ever done. <laughs> she saw it on the shelf and she calls me, Oh my God, my son, my son. And I'm like, calm down, mom. I've got $10 to my name. Calm down. And, yeah. and you know, and it's like, but, and that gave her a little glimmer of hope, you know, but I know she still prays and hopes for me, but it's kind of like going back to the story you just told about your friend. You know, I didn't want to live off my parents. I didn't want to take hand-me-downs. My mom taught me not to take hand-me-downs. My mom taught me to work and my dad to work for everything I ever had. And that's exactly what I decided to do. I didn't want to go to college. I couldn't afford to go to like Juilliard or anything like that. And as much as my mom says that that she couldn't afford it either, you know, Juilliard is like, dude. (laughs) Um, And that would have been the only school I would have went went to, but um, life works out the way it does. When I got here, uh, eventually at some point, my mom had helped me out with an acting class and which I'm so thankful to her for because I needed that class so bad. And I took that class and I was in it for two years. Um, and then I went on to another class and another class and another class. I ended up paying for all this school. Um, but thank you, mom, uh, for helping me out in that time. But yeah, man, you know, it, it just is what it is, dude. You know, like, uh, and I also understand their hardcore ethic of, well, he's going to go leave the nest, let him spread his wings and do it on his own. He doesn't want to do it. We want him to stay here and do like any normal person would probably do in their right mind. So let him go do it. And I had a, that enough stubborn nature in myself to go, yeah, I'm going to fucking do it. You know, and, and 
uh, the only one that's going to stop me is me. Yeah. You know, I was tired of my entire life being told no, being told I'm not good enough. I should do this instead of that. You know, other people trying to dictate who I was and what I was going to do and what I was good at. I was done with that. And so I took the risk. I drove down here and look, some people do this from New York or from Australia, right? I just had to drive a measly 400 miles to come down here, but I had nothing, dude. I had a car with a car payment and a flip cell phone. I had no idea how I was going to pay for these things. So I slept in my, and I had my drum set in the back. Like I was trying to get a band gig and it was a mess. (laughs) Um, But luckily it all worked out, man, you know, and, you take these leaps of faith. And I do remember at that time, I didn't know that many people yet. I knew this band I was playing with, but no one wanted to let you sleep on their couch for more than a night. You know, like they didn't, it made them feel weird. You know, and if, if you, if you couldn't take care of yourself, no one was going to help you. But the moment you start taking care of yourself and getting your shit together, everyone wants to help. It's weird how that works. It's a lesson my mom taught me a long time ago, and it's very, very true. Um, I've found it to be true ever since. I mean, I've never been back home, never moved back in with my family. I've never needed to, you know, uh, sit down on anybody to, to, to bring me my life. And it's all, I've had to do it all on my own. And now with my wife, my wife has done it on her own, and then us together. Um, so... You know, all of those trials and tribulations. Now we have each other and this beautiful little baby and life carries on. And, you know. And before we go, uh, if you want to give your uh, social media handles so that uh, people can follow and uh, actually uh, on Instagram, I know uh, you can see pictures of uh, the little one having uh, that big smile. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that'd be awesome um i would love for you all to tune in and thank you very much for all of your support uh my instagram is at dustin dot harnish at d-u-s-t-i-n dot h-a-r-n-i-s-h and then my podcast is on all streaming platforms wherever you get your, your podcast from and it's called true darkness the podcast um most recent movies coming up pretty soon are um, the Ice Cream Stop, which is still traveling through the global film festival circuit. We are currently working on a new feature film called The Four Points that I'm starring in and producing it. And uh, also I want to give a shout out to uh, one last thing. I want to give a shout out to a recent entertainment industry friend of mine that my wife got, got me together with. Her name is Lily Singh. She has been putting me in a bunch of stuff lately. And I just want to say thank you very much to her. So if you all get a chance to go check out Lily Singh's YouTube page and or her recent TV show on NBC called A Little Late with Lily Singh, I'm on the Teddy Swims episode. And uh, I play a cop in that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, we have a thing coming out uh, next month in December that you're all, I think, going to just laugh your whole pants off. I know I laughed a lot uh, making it with her and um, it's Santa, Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus in marriage counseling. So, and I play Santa, it was too much fun. So I hope you guys all stay tuned, stay tuned into that stuff. And uh, thank you all for listening.
Awesome. And thank you all for tuning in. And uh, again, uh, keep supporting the Vegas Bad Boys podcast thing. And until next time, we'll see you guys then. And great talking with you, brother. Thank you very much. Vegas Bad Boys of Podcasting.